1: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2.
0: Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This is Abraham talking to the Lord. I think this is a all right. I wish I had this skill of putting a, you know, a good New York Jewish accent on this. That happens. I don't have that skill. Some of my friends can do that so well. I wish I had that skill. I can't. But you really can hardly not want, give this a good Jewish accent. The Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Wow, that's quite a statement. Fifty. The Lord will spare it for fifty. Abraham's not finished. Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust. You know, I, 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 I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. This is Abraham talking about himself, all right? Peradventure shall there lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of Five. And he said, If I find there 40 and five, I will not destroy it. Well, that's pretty cool, okay? Abraham's on a roll here. He spake unto them yet again and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he, God said, I will not do it for the forty's sake. And Abraham said to him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be 30 found there. He said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And Abram said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. So so far so good, right? Abram does it one more time. He said, "Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once, peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. Now the big question is, Abraham didn't go on, what if there's only one there? What do you think the answer is? We're going to find out in the next chapter. If there's just one there, who's still there in Sodom? Lot. Is Lot walking in faith? No. Is he righteous? Yes. Wow. The Lord went on his way, and as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Genesis 19, next chapter, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll skip through the whole sordid detail of the homosexuals wanting to get their hands on these two angels, where Lot even offers them his daughters. But they blind the people and take care of that and get them out of there. But I want you to notice something that many people miss. As you look at verse 17 and 18. It came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad. And he said, escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. This is the angel counseling Lot and his family. And Lot said to them, oh, not so, my lord. <laughs> Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy which thou hast showed unto me in, the, in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold now, this city, pointing to another one, that is near to flee to, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not just a little one? And my soul shall live. Lot's negotiating with his angel. He doesn't want to Go the distance. See, there's a small city nearby. Can, and won't I be all right there? That's what he's pushing for. Okay. Notice what happens here. And he said, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city, this little one, which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither. Now get this is what everybody misses. For I cannot do anything till thou come thither. That's an interesting verse. The angels weren't doing Lot and his family a favor by getting them out of town as a gesture to them. No, it was a requirement. The angels could not do their job destroying the city until he got out of there. You miss that if you read it casually. The angel says to Lot, Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. See, that answers the implied question in the previous chapter. What if there's just one left? He'll get out of there. You see, I think the wrath of God cannot descend on the planet Earth until the church has been removed in the Harpazo. That's what this tells me. Not everybody agrees with me, that's just one person's view. Study, do your own study, come to your own conclusions. Anyway, therefore, the name of the city is called Zohar, and the sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zohar. The Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of those cities and that which grew up on the ground. But his wife, Lot's wife, looked back from behind him and became a pillar of salt. The word became there is a transitive verb, an active verb with an object. She became a pillar of salt. It's not a verb of being, it's a verb of action. It's the same word that's used in the second verse of Genesis chapter 1. The earth became without form and void. And in the, in the uh, in actual Standard Version, the earth had become without form and void. Same verb, by the way. Anyway, let's move on. I'll let you play with that one on your own. 2 Peter. Two nine, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to, re- to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. That's the summary that Peter gives us of that whole episode. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of je- temptations. He got Lot out of there. It wasn't just an act of mercy, God. It was that, of course, but it was a condition, precedent to the angels destroying the place. So this verse concludes the sentence that began in verse 4. We've got a, we had a five sentence, a five verse sentence here. It's a declaration of God's sovereignty. Praise His holy name. Praise His name. In Lot's case, he had to be literally dragged out. Lot did accept divine intervention on his behalf, as did Elizabeth and Zacharias, who also called upright in Luke chapter 1. And this says a lot about Abraham's intercessory prayer in Genesis 18 that we read, that very humorous negotiation between Abraham and the Lord. Okay, so Lot's removal is a, pre- a condition precedent to the judgment ruling, falling. And Noah and Lot stood alone, however. God delivered them both. He delivered Noah the, from the flood, He delivered Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. There is no hope for the unjust. These are justified. The others are not. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Let's th- listen to that very carefully. They were not afraid to speak evil of dignities. You and I are enjoined of not, to not speak evil of dignities. And in the epistle of Jude, where he hammers this point, he picks the most surprising example. The dignity that you're not to speak evil of, that he chooses to make his point, is Satan. He talks about Michael and Satan fighting over the body of Moses, as if his readers knew all about that. We don't know anything about it, but apparently his readers, did, Jude's readers did. And he makes the point that even Michael, in disputing with Satan over the body of Moses, dared not bring railing accusation against him, but said, The Lord, deal with it. I get very nervous when I'm with a congreg- when I visit and fly, you know, travel around the country and visit a congregation, and they sing some of these songs. I'm so glad, Satan's so mad. You know, some of these songs that make fun of Satan. Big mistake. The epistle of Jude said, Hey, we shouldn't do that. Because Satan is still powerful. Is a dignity. Let God deal with it. Don't you try to deal with it. So, presumptuous are they and self willed. They're also, not only are they presumptuous, they're going to make sport of the second coming of Christ. In the next chapter, there's a very interesting glimpse we get there about people who don't take seriously the second coming of Jesus Christ. Self will, he says. His world contracts until the only thing he has left is the self he has corrupted. He rejects all authority. He's talking about the false teachers here. Bring not railing accusation. The word railing there is actually blasphemos in the Greek. Blaspheme, insult, slander. You don't insult or slander Satan. Don't do that. That's lead out to the Lord. And Jude's parallel example of Michael has to be the most bizarre allusion in the Bible in Jude 9. I'll let you study that uh, and get it there. Michael was on a mission for the Lord, which Satan was obstructing, and Michael did not bring railing accusations against Satan. He left it in the Lord's hands. We need to learn from that. Continuing, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they do not understand, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Let me give you a good example. You ever read these press releases by the so-called Jesus Seminar? These so-called scholars that vote on what Jesus probably really said? Boy. They speak about things they do not understand. They don't know their Bible, amazingly enough. And they shall perish in their own corruption. False teachers are willfully blind, willfully blind to what the Bible teaches. And we'll deal with that in the next chapter. It's coming. They call evangelical Christians uneducated, and biblical theology old-fashioned. Now, the re- there're there as natural brute beasts. The, re- the brute beasts here may be an anticipatory illusion, because he's going to talk about Balaam's ass here in uh, verse 16 coming up. And it shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime, spots they are and blemishes. Sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. Beguiling unstable souls. A heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Cursed children. Beguiling unstable. The word beguiling there, Adilazo, is to catch with with bait. Are you surprised that Peter's using a fishing term here? He's our fisherman. He's our Galilean fisherman, isn't he? Beguiling, or actually to catch like with bait. It's a fishing term, interestingly enough. Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. The way of Balaam. Scholars make three distinctions about Balaam. The way of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, and uh, we'll we'll look at all three. The way of Balaam here... The error of Balaam that's mentioned in Jude 11 and the doctrine of Balaam, Revelation 2.14. Very similar, slightly different, each one. Here we're talking about the way of Balaam. What do I mean by that? Pretending to be subject to the Lord, they crave the riches of Balak, that is the world. The king, king Balak the king was hiring Balaam. So the way of Balaam was to enrich himself from the world, exercising his gift. A very strange character, this guy Balaam. Number, Numbers 31 uh, attributes his influence, uh, the, his influence on the immorality of the Israelites at Baal uh, Peor in Numbers 25. And this type is also in Jude 11 where Baal Peor is very implicit. And uh, basically, well I'll get back to that. The error of Balaam, reasoning from natural moral uh, morality and seeing evil in Israel, he supposed a righteous God has to curse Israel. So he assumed by getting the Moabites under Balak to have their attractive young girls mix, mix it up with the Israeli guys and lead them to sin, that God would judge them. That was his strat- that's the strategy he outlined to King Balak. He wouldn't curse them directly, but he assumed by Balak getting them entangled in morality that that would bring down the judgment of God. That was Balaam's error to assume that God's grace didn't have a way around that. He was blind... To the higher morality of the cross, through which God maintains and enforces the authority and awful sanctions of the law, so that he can be just and the justifier of a believing sinner. God, because of the cross that was coming, God had the freedom to exercise mercy. The reward of verse 11 is not necessarily money. It may be popularity, fame, or applause. It was money in Balaam's case, but in the case of false teachers, it can be any of those things. The doctrine of Balaam is something else yet again. That Revelation 2:14 in the le- in the letters there mentioned teaching Balak to corrupt the people who could not be cursed. That was the doctrine of Balaam, and, and all this is Numbers uh, uh, 20, uh, Numbers uh, 31 and 22, 23, and Baal, Peol, That whole incident there is implicit in 1 Corinthians 10. Deals with that. Continuing here, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam. The son of Bosor. Now, the Bosor, some manuscripts call Balaam the son of Bosor, not the son of Beor here. Um, this could be a deliberate kind of a parnamesia, uh, a figure of speech, to because Bosor means the flesh, and there could be a play on words being going on here. It also could be simply the Galilean mispronunciation of the guttural Hebrew name. that would, You would expect that of Peter, as hinted at in Matthew 26. So the, the bosor Bessor besor might be just a uh, Galilean mispronunciation. Anyway, but he was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. And you all know the story of Balaam, how his don- God used his donkey to bring him to uh, consciousness. It's interesting that the Old Testament was not a problem to the early church. The modern church says, well, those are just colorful stories. They don't, take, they don't really think a, do- a donkey really spoke. The very church didn't have any problem with that. That's what the Bible said. That's what the Bible means. And if God can use Balaam's ass, he can use any of us to accomplish his purposes. Now he goes on. Now, Peter uses the same figures of speech that Jude does here. Very similar. Speaking of the false teachers, these are wells without water. Clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. Wells without water." By golly, if you've ever done any serious reading in the psychological literature, from a biblical point of view, they are really empty. They are vacuous. Why? Because psychology has no remedy for the primary problem of the human predicament. It's called sin. All psychology can deal with is guilt not the sin. And it only patches the symptoms. And that's in contrast to the living waters described in John 4 and John 7 and so forth. It's astonishing to realize how bankrupt the whole field of psychology is on the primary predicament of man, sin. Psychology has no answers to that. They can only deal with the guilt, the symptoms of that. Pretentious vendors of man's alternative doctrines are doomed to darkness. Psychology attempts to, to infer the architecture of the software of the human soul, spirit and soul. Can't do it. You cannot infer the architecture of software by the external behavior of a computer. And that's the same frustration that psychology has trying to infer the makeup of the human soul. Clouds they are carried about with tempest to whom the mist of darkness, or mists in plural actually, it's metaphorically uh, of the evil workers here mentioned. It's a haze which heralds dry weather. There's a haze that heralds dry weather. That's a hummockly. And uh, that's the word that appears here in the Greek. And uh, what it, what's characteristic of that kind of a mist? A, it's easily dispersed with a sharp gust of wind. It's unstable. It's not like the, a, fist, a mist or fog that hangs over. It's just the opposite. It's a mist that can be dispersed with a gust of wind. That's what the Greek term means. And uh, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. And when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that are clean escaped from them who, who live in. The, sw- the swelling words, unnaturally swollen, bombastic, haughty, or the other, ostentationally uh, verbose. Do you know any people like that? Have you ever sampled the psychological literature? (laughs) Talk about great swelling words of vanity. Wow. While they promise liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. My background is engineering, but I had an occasion to be part of a major classified project uh, with a lot of experimental and clinical behavioral scientists as part of the team. As I got to know them and understood their background, it was astonishing to me to see a whole field of study that is fundamentally spiritually bankrupt. You don't really see that in physics or biology. It's interesting. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption, of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage. In bondage! The promise of modern psychological counseling is liberty. That's the promise. What's the delivered result? Bondage to self. (laughs) Psychoanalysis deserves the term couch potato. It gives it a whole new meaning. (laughs) Anyway. Seneca has a great line. To be enslaved to oneself is the heaviest of all servitudes. I like that. Continuing. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Entangled therein. That's another fishing metaphor by Peter. He's a fisherman. Let's not forget it. It's quite different to know Christianity as a system. It's quite another to know Christ as a person, as a Savior. Those are two different things. Those who simply take up a series of doctrines are always vulnerable to giving them up for some other system. We're not into systems, we're not into Christianity, we're into a personal relationship with the person, the living, active person of Jesus Christ. As Peter finally wraps it up here, he says, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, then after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Now some people stumble at these last couple of verses suggesting that someone that's truly born again can can once more become the seed of Satan. Don't confuse mere profession with reality. These are like the men of Hebrews 6, which I encourage you to study our commentary on, or Hebrews 10. Those are two passages, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, that deal with this issue of apparently being able to lose your salvation. No, not at all. In Matthew 12 and Luke 11 and so on. But it's happening to them according to the true proverb, and this is a quote from Proverbs 26, 11, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. The dog and the pig are both used here as symbols of what? The false teacher. The, the idiom that's used of us is sheep. Sheep are, <laughs> I ask a shepherd, what, what character characterizes sheep? Two things, they are really dumb. Gee, thanks a lot, you know. And the other thing is, if, there's a, if there is a hole in the fence, they'll find it. It's something uncanny. They're really stupid on the one hand, but if there's a hole in the fence, they'll find it. That's the two things that a shepherd will tell you about a sheep. Both the dog and the pigs are unclean animals to the Jew. They're united by Jesus in Matthew 7, 6. One's true nature will be manifested in their subsequent walk. And the implication here is that you are not a dog, nor a sow. The false teachers are. Their punishment is that it will be given over to the lot they've chosen. Their punishment is that they will get what they want. <laughs> I remember a pastor that I think very highly of gave a sermon. And the sermon was on adultery. And he said, sometimes God's punishment is to give them what they want. The guy that leaves his wife for the secretary, it isn't very long when he realizes what a huge mistake he made. And uh, I'm reminded of a great scene in a movie called uh, The Heat of the Night, where the woman's husband had been killed in the southern town. And she's shocked at the prejudice and other overtones there. And she said, if they don't find out who that killed his husband, then she's going to leave them to themselves. <laughs> could take the plant that he was going to build there away. But I mean, that was like, as she was speaking of venom at the crowd there. I'll leave you to yourselves. You know, very communicative. They are punished with that. They will be given over to the lot that they have chosen. God underwrites man's deliberate choice. In the end, we will all go to our own place. In quotes. Okay. We could spend a lot more time on chapter two, but I think the lessons are straightforward. Next time, there's the last chapter of 2 Peter, and I want you to study it carefully. But notice particularly something that isn't obvious until you've thought about it a little bit. I want you to notice the connection between the creation and eschatology. I think most of us here have have pretty strong views about the validity of the creation. God created the the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, Genesis one, the whole routine. Perhaps we haven't ever thought about it, but next chapter is going to connect this for us. That that there's a direct connection between the creation and the second coming. And people who deny the second coming are the same people who deny or don't grasp or understand the creation. Those two ideas are linked in a very unusual way, and that will be partly our discussion next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the truth of your word. We do pray, Father, that you would anchor us in your word, and through the Holy Spirit illuminate what your Word teaches us, and deliver us from those that would misteach us, whether in sincere uh, confusion or whether it's through malice or deceptiveness. We look to you, Father, to be our guide. We look to you, Father, to, that we each might grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we commit ourselves. Amen.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device.